the church at Philippi was a, a wonderful church. Uh, over the last couple of days, I've, I've used a version of, uh, of the Bible called the U version. If you have it, you can download it, or if you have a smartphone. And there's a little function on there that allows you to listen to someone reading it, which is great. And uh, I was in my car and I was driving. It reminded me of a Fresh Streams conference. Uh, sorry, Alan, about this. We were up there. Alan was there and he was finding the Bible, but managed to press the, uh, the, the, uh, the audio. And it was really silent with 400 people gathered. And this little voice started speaking out. And Alan was like, oh, my God, he's gone red now thinking about it. It was such an embarrassing moment, wasn't it? And he couldn't stop it. He couldn't stop it. Sorry, Alan. Uh, it does still make me chuckle. And... <laughs> Anyway, I've listened to the whole letter, these four chapters, a few times. It's a a wonderful little facility, not only to read it, but to hear the Word of God. And as I was listening through those four chapters, again, I was reminded that there were no real doctrinal issues for the church in Philippi. Paul's letter isn't containing lots of, you know, sort this out. This is what you need to know. There weren't problems about eating meat sacrificed to idols, or bragging about how big they were and important they were in their spiritual terms, as in the church in Corinth. Unlike Galatians, nobody had, uh, the church in Galatia, nobody had slipped back into Judaism or had given up on the faith and the grace of God in, in Jesus Christ. No one was questioning Paul and his motives as they were in Thessalonica, in the church to the Thessalonians. In fact, Philippians is this great church. Nobody was squabbling about perhaps, well, big issues in their mind, but in the, great, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, the smaller things, the loudness of drums. There have been worship wars and all sorts of contra- conflicts and issues around churches. I came across two letters uh, written uh, this is uh, one that uh, was written, I'll tell you which song and uh, which hymn and when it was written, see, but see if it, uh, it rings any bells with you. Uh, this person wrote to the, uh, to the leader of the church, what is wrong with the inspiring hymns with which we grew up? I go to church to worship God, not to be distracted with learning a new hymn. Last Sunday's hymn was particularly unnerving. The tune was unsingable and the harmonies were quite discordant. Any guesses? Uh, it was, what a friend we have in Jesus in 1890. Another one. One more. Pastor, I'm no music scholar, but I feel I know appropriate church music when I hear it. Last Sunday's new hymn, if you can call it that, sounded like a sentimental love ballad, one you'd expect to hear in a saloon. If you insist on exposing us to rubbish like this in God's house, don't be surprised if many of the faithful look, back, look for a new place of worship. The hymns we grew up with are all that we need. Any guesses? 1863 for Just As I Am. Anyway. That wasn't the focus for Paul, though. The church in Philippi was a wonderful church, and the letter glows. Or maybe... Maybe it was something like that, but maybe, maybe we just scratch a little deeper. Maybe it's just a little trifling thing that we shouldn't really mention. I mean, they really were a great church. They weren't real problems, as I've, I've been indicating. 
And yet Paul does, does devote all this space in chapter 2, all these words, to what? To a call for unity. Why did he do it? Why did he address the need for harmony if everything was just right, if it was hunky-dory? Mark Twain used to say he put a cat and a dog in a cage together as an experiment to see if they could get along. They did. So he put in a bird, a pig, and a goat. They, too, got along fine after a few adjustments. Then he put in a Baptist, a Presbyterian, and a Catholic, and soon there was no living thing left. You did hear it, didn't you, in the, in the Scripture? Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. What's going on? Was this the church in Philippi, the perfect church or not? No, it wasn't perfect. That old adage, if you find the perfect church, don't join it, you'd ruin it. There is no such thing as the perfect church. Of course, Philippi didn't have big problems, but they did have some. It's only hinted at here, but it's there in Philippians. Chapter 4, verse 2, we'll get to it. He says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syncretia to be of the same mind in the Lord. The same mind, that word, is precisely the same phrase that is used here in chapter 2. No major problems in Philippi. They weren't facing any theological heresies. There were no church scandals. The treasurer hadn't absconded with funds and making his way to Monaco to retire in some luxury villa. Hi, Martin, by the way, on that line. The problem at Philippi may have been nothing more than what appeared to be pettiness, irritation, dare I say it, difference of opinion. We're really eager to gather again and looking forward to it in the coming weeks. Here today, and as we're able to move back to the school and welcome a few more, we long for June when hopefully the restrictions are lifted. It's been so long, hasn't it? Hairs have hairs grown and changed color and, and all that. Young, our children are growing up. We're kind of going, really? Is that Miriam? She's so tall now. And no doubt it's going to be so sweet and so special to be united again and, and to sing again. And maybe perhaps once upon a time we can shake hands again. But no doubt after that initial joy and enthusiasm and singing again out loud... Maybe just in a few weeks, after a little while, it won't be that utopia and that heaven on earth and, oh, it's so great to be together again. Perhaps in Philippi, there was an issue that perhaps could be called pettiness. We don't know what was up with Euodia and Syncate. Something on face value could seem somewhat trivial, inconsequential. They just irked each other. But pettiness, these small things can soon become bigger. These two women in the church were at odds about something. We don't know what. Pointless to speculate. 
But interestingly, Paul calls them by name. He expects the letter that he's written to be read in the church, in their gatherings. If I'd been reading this letter when it arrived in Philippi, I may have been tempted to skip the part at the end where he addresses the two women. You know, I'd say, well, oh gosh, do we really want to single out these two? I'd say, well, you know, we've heard from Paul before that usual stuff, yours sincerely, I love you in the Lord Jesus Christ, etc., etc. In fact, I can't recall a service that I've actually been to where a preacher's called out the names of people in the church who were at odds. Can you imagine it? In fact, in sermon class back at Spurgeon's, we were explicitly, explicitly told, don't preach at someone, either by name or by implicitly. Don't single people out. Well, of course, that's in sermons, but we've all done it in prayer meetings, haven't we? Lord, we just pray for, help John. You know how he goes on and on. I don't think there's a John in the fellowship. Forgive me if I've overlooked you. But not the names of the bickering women. It takes a lot of guts for a preacher to do that, or a lot of stupidity. There's one certain fire way to get an email or a letter on a Monday morning with a resignation. How dare you? Then maybe that's not the case. Paul isn't there, is he? He's in chains somewhere, in prison. I bet he was glad of that. He'd got a guard to protect him, hadn't he? He could dodge the bullets. That was one letter he could have read in his absence. And yet it was a sermon of sorts. It's interesting, isn't it, how letters work. They allow for direct face-to-face communication without actually being face-to-face. It's convenient. Did you ever get a letter or an email from someone who's had a go at you? If they'd say it to your face, you'd have interrupted and stopped them and said, I can't take it, this, this isn't true. Or how dare you? You might even walk away, but not with a letter. You can throw it away afterwards, but you read it first, don't you? Every single line you go through, even if you don't want to hear it. Same is true of Paul's letter. And Paul's letter was part of the worship service. Can you imagine what it would have been like over coffee afterwards? With the odia and syncate and that awful, awkward shuffle people were making and not quite making eye contact with them. See, early church worship was a little bit different from ours, at least in some ways. They didn't meet in buildings like us, but they met in homes, and maybe things were a little bit more casual, though not as casual as we might at first think. They were key parts of their worship. Of course, they prayed. They read the scriptures publicly, we're told in Timothy. They baptized. They shared the Lord's Supper. There were other elements of worship, of course. There was singing of the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs. It's not surprising that we've missed singing so much. It's part of the DNA of the disciple of how we're essentially rewired, indeed wired from the first place, to worship and to praise Him. And also in their worship, there was a reading of the apostolic letters, Paul's correspondence, especially at Philippi, a letter from the apostle, from the founder, their friend, 
This was a fellowship Paul cherished. If you were Paul, what would you say? He starts with that wonderful line in chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. His memories were many, even from a short time. He wrote of praying for them, of being in prison and yet being hopeful, and then uh, decided to head on this issue front and center. But how? In typical Paul fashion, he spoke positively of four needed qualities, being of the same mind, having the same love, and being one in spirit in mind, verse 2. And then he spoke th- negatively of three undesirable qualities. Don't do anything from selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit. And don't look to your own interests. What else could he say? Maybe he pushed back from the table and, and stretched, maybe walking around the, the prison cell where he's being guarded. He'd said it all in a sense. Perhaps he thought hard about calling out the women by name right there. What else could he say? Paul thinking and praying, loving them and picturing their precious faces. And maybe his foot began to tap and he started humming There was a hymn he just couldn't quite shake loose in his mind. Maybe it had been streaming on his telephone that morning when he awoke. And he sang the words and and then began to listen, really listen to the words. It was one of those hymns that was around, that had caught on, that was being sung by the faithful. It was a song of praise with a great tune, seeking to be heard, anointed music having the same mindset of Christ, who being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Yes, in the letter Paul would refer to a hymn. That's what those words are. Not all the translations capture it in the way that they write it. But verses 5 to 11 are a song. They're a hymn. We don't know if Paul wrote it or he borrowed it, but he certainly used it in this letter. And as he wrote, he may have hummed it. He may have sung it. And as he wrote, he hoped those women and the church fellowship would be humming it too. They knew the sound of that song. I've been around churches long enough to see so many good things in church life. Relationships and and love and and people coming to faith and deep friendships and, and shared time and meals and laughter and people being relaxed and finding peace. Worshiping together, praying together, serving together, making Jesus known together. Deep. Strong friendships. And I've seen things turn sour. And I've seen when people won't even speak to each other. And sit at different places in the church and friendships are broken and people have dropped out. And the pain goes deep. In fact, I heard of one church and the 
the hall needed new chairs. So the group tasked with finding chairs, because there's always a group tasked with something in church life, decided to go for the plastic sort. You could stack four or five high. But at the church meeting, when the proposal was put, someone wanted to know why we couldn't just use folding chairs, which would be far easier to store and probably cheaper too. No, said some. They were more expensive. Others said, oh, no, they're not. Some said the plastic ones are more durable. But others said, no, no, they will get brittle and break and cracked and scuffed. And the two couples went to battle against each other over it. And one stopped coming. Can you imagine what would have happened if before they stopped coming, the previous minister had written a letter to the church to be read out in the service saying, put aside your differences, take a breath, pause and look at the bigger picture. I can't really be sure, of course, but if that letter had been read and And what if the minister had thrown in one line from a song that they all of them had sung in worship together? Maybe, maybe we're coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you. Who knows, maybe, uh, why did Paul quote these lines from this hymn and this song? Maybe because they loved that song and it would remind them of that precious unity in worshiping together. Why this one? I love this song. This song, this hymn, is considered one of the most majestic passages in the Bible, a classic hymn. I was just talking to Phil before we were gathering. He said, it's a great passage, this one. I said, it is. It is. In fact, some traditions of church have this text read on Palm Sunday. Every year, because more than any other song of worship a church could sing, it reminds us of God's wonderful gift in the sacrifice of Christ. So why is Paul drawing on this great song, so rich in theological depth and insight and beauty, in the face of a petty disagreement? Why roll out the big guns over such a small argument? Maybe it's because when we're forced to look at the awesome gift of God, giving His Son, that whatever it is, whatever it is that rankles and irks and has got under our skin, maybe it's that reminder that that small thing shouldn't become large because it is insignificant and trifling and much, much less than the glory and the splendor and the majesty. And maybe on that Palm Sunday when it's read out every year in certain traditions and we use it in our own worship often, maybe alongside the loud hosannas, the arguments amongst Christians and the disagreements and the frustrations perhaps start to look a little bit silly. Puts it in perspective. Do you know, I really, really love being part of this church. It's got such a great group of people here and online and and in all sorts of places right now. Called together with vision and mission and loving service. And of of course we're not perfect. And of course there's a few tensions along the way. And if I'm honest, I'm sure I'm sometimes part of the cause of that tension. 
And here's where Paul is so helpful and so wise. Paul says, be united to love one another. And just in case we don't hear those words, he sings it out in this rich hymn about Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. It's called to unity. We've got it, haven't we? Let's pray.